Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, November 20th, 2020. We hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving weekend. A wonderful weekend, Thanksgiving. Safe. And uh, is looking forward to the final month of 2020, coming up here very shortly. Could not come soon enough. Yes, indeed. But today, we are going to be talking about two topics of conversation. Number one, of course, the coronavirus Things had not looked good before Thanksgiving. They're likely not to look good after Thanksgiving, but that doesn't mean there aren't important steps that people can take today. Correct. And also important developments to discuss related to vaccines, related to testing, related to the Biden administration. Yeah, the future of of the coronavirus in 2021 overall. And then in the second segment, we're going to talk about just kind of some broader themes around uh, the election fallout. It seems even though President Trump will not concede, he's allowing the transition to move forward. Yes, huge development this week. Yeah, specifically allowing the GSA to kind of allocate the resources and funds and uh, authorization for agencies to collaborate with the Biden transition team. And beginning tomorrow or the day that you are listening to this Monday, Joe Biden will begin receiving the classified presidential daily brief. So progress on that front too. But so even though that step those steps are moving forward in terms of the Biden administration, there's some really interesting just fallout in terms of allegations of a rigged election. We have new elections in Georgia and just overall the level of influence that President Trump, his administration and his theories around democracy might have for all of us moving forward. But first, highlight low light, starting low, going high. The low light I'm going to start with is the data download on Meet the Press. Take a listen to kind of the framing of this and what kind of the whole topic is really about here, because that's something we had a little bit of an issue with. Take a listen. Download time as the 2020 campaign wound down. President Trump crisscrossed the country, hoping big rallies would drum up enthusiasm as it did for him in 2016. Did it work? An NBC News tally shows there were 30 Trump campaign stops in the last two weeks in states from Arizona to Nebraska to Pennsylvania. In five counties that Mr. Trump visited, he saw better results than he did in 2016. But in the remaining 25, either his margin of victory shrank, his margin of defeat grew, or the county flipped to Biden altogether. So let's look at a few of these counties in a few battleground states. We're going to start in Michigan. On October 27th, President Trump held a rally in Ingham County, home of Lansing. He wound up doing five points worse than he did there in 2016. In Oakland County, north of Detroit, he did six points worse than in 2016. And in Grand Traverse County, after an election eve rally, he won for a second time, but his margin fell by nine points. There was a similar pattern in Pennsylvania. Now, to be clear, none of this is provable. 
Mr. Trump's rallies actually may have helped him even in places where he lost ground. But in a time where public health experts were warning about COVID risks at large gatherings, they may have been more of a liability, particularly locally, than an asset. So the premise, the entire premise of this data download is that Trump's rallies did not deliver, right? Trump set out on this crazy, you know, really quite impressive schedule for somebody who just had the coronavirus and was hospitalized for it. He set out on this crazy schedule of rallies, very aggressive, 30 rallies in the last two weeks we hear in, in this introduction. And yet he didn't do very well in these places, right? And I, I really take issue with kind of the overall framing. Now, what we heard from Chuck Todd there at the end was, hey, you know, it might not be provable that the rallies made him do worse, even though he did worse this election in most of these places than he did in 2016. They may have helped, but Chuck Todd says, you know, at a time when we were warning about COVID risks, it probably wasn't worth the risk, right? Because it didn't actually deliver. So a few things with this. Number one, totally, I'm not defending doing dangerous rallies or having rallies that put people in dangerous positions. Not defending that at all. However, it is worth noting here that, first of all, we don't have data about whether the rallies actually helped Donald Trump in these places based on like the week before the rally and then the week after the rally, right? We don't know that. We don't know if it actually, because we don't have the data on exactly how these places were doing just a moment before, or Chuck Todd and his team didn't dig for it, or they didn't provide it, and they didn't indicate whether there was a difference there. Because it could, number two, point number two is, when you're holding campaign stops, you go to the places where you're struggling. You go to the places where you might be able to make a difference. And that is just a common thing in campaigning. Joe Biden didn't have a lot of campaign stops in California because he was doing fine there. Donald Trump is not going to go to places where he's doing fine. He's going to go to places, any campaign is going to go to places where they can have an impact. So the fact that these places did worse this year than they did before, I'm sure the Trump team knew that before they even decided to go to these places. So that's point number two. And I guess point number three is just the question of, is it really responsible to be framing this entire data download around this this analysis when you don't actually have the data to back up whether the rallies made an impact at all, right? Certainly the rallies didn't deliver. But as we saw from polling, the polling was way out of line this year, just a historic polling error, worse than the 2016 polling error. And so, the first of all, the Trump team didn't know whether this would have a difference or not. And the fact that the team at Meet the Press doesn't truly know whether it made a difference at all is, is reason why we probably shouldn't be presenting this, right? The Sunday show shouldn't be presenting this data download because people are going to walk away thinking that, in fact, Trump's rallies maybe had even a negative effect for him. And that's probably not actually true, right? The rallies definitely got a lot of people excited. There were definitely more people showing up there than maybe had been anticipated by pundits. And the other thing to point out is the rallies have an effect outside of the regions that they're taking place in. The rallies are broadcast live nationally on Fox News, and people walk away, even if they didn't attend these rallies, saying, oh, wow, look, Trump is out there. He's fighting for it. He thinks he has a chance. He's not, you know, going down without a fight, even though he got COVID. 
even though he's down in the polls, right? He's out there fighting, and maybe I, a Republican voter and Trump supporter, should make the effort to go out and vote for him. So the rallies have a lot of value outside of whether they actually, you know, pushed him over the edge. Certainly they didn't. You know, the results are that Trump lost. He has to come to terms with that. But I really feel like this data download, someone watching it, particularly someone who doesn't like Trump, can watch it and say, ha ha, look, his rallies don't actually work for him. They're a failure. And I really don't think the data is there to back that up. And it's kind of irresponsible to put it out there when it's pretty clear that's how people are going to walk away. Right. It's making an assumption that your viewers are going to take it this way and you're kind of like serving it to them on a silver platter and not assuming that your viewers are going to literally peek behind the curtain, even just a smidge to realize that what you're saying doesn't have that much validity or isn't there isn't enough weight to believe what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And on the other side of this, you could do the other analysis on Biden's rallies. In a bizarro world, there's another version of this story on, I don't know, Dana Perino or something. And she's talking about how the drive-ins didn't do, had no effect. Yeah. All right, Naomi, why don't we talk about some highlights? Because we got a lot of highlights here. This was a pretty good Sunday for the show. It's often in a time when, you know, holiday weekends, people are, are kind of on cruise control. That wasn't the case for these hosts and these shows this week, even when there were stand-in hosts. Yeah, you're right. All the shows I felt were pretty stellar, and it we only had one low light, and we kind of really had to search for it. My highlight today is something that I noticed on State of the Union that I thought was really well done. Dana Bash guest hosted for Jake Tapper today. Dana Bash had two women that I thought were worthwhile. She had Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, and she also had Nicole Maliotakis of New York City. And these are two Republican women who won their races in just a few weeks ago and are part of a bigger trend, a bigger effort of the Republican Party to get more women to run for office. Take a listen to how the conversation starts and a little bit as to what motivated these two women. Republican women uh, more than doubled their numbers in the U.S. House this election. Right. Just 13 right now. Uh, it will be at least 28 in the next Congress. Why do you think Republican women performed better this year than in the past? Well, we had more women running this year, and it was an exciting time. We saw in 2018 a record number of Democrat women run and win. And if women want to have a seat at the table, then we've got to raise our hand and say, we're going to step into the arena, risk it all, and we're going to run. And we have to have more women run to win. And we can't just do this this year in 2020. This is something we have to do, especially in the House, every two years when we have our election cycles. But we made a huge a huge difference this year. And if we want to have a seat at the table, women have to run and they have to win. And the the great thing about this story this year, Dana, and I'm so appreciative of you having Nicole and I on today, is that it's not just Democrat women that have a monopoly on breaking glass ceilings. Republican women have been doing it all year long in these elections all across the country. And in fact, 26 of the 27 toss-up races here this year were won by women, minorities, uh, combat vets. And in my case, I was in a lean Democrat seat that we took back this year. And it's just an exciting time to be part of history with all these great, hardworking women. One of the reasons why you saw so many women take office on the Republican side was because of the efforts of leader Kevin McCarthy, because of people like Elise Stefanik, Liz Cheney, Steve Scalise, who went out there and recruited 
recruited qualified women who have something to share with the American people and who have the experience and the background to be productive participants in the legislative process. And I think some of the one of the reasons why we were so motivated to run is seeing the Democratic women being elected in 2018 that don't necessarily reflect our values, particularly those who are you know, self-described socialists. Somebody like me, daughter of a Cuban refugee, you know, I want to be there to be a part of the discussion and the debate and provide a counter view. So just, you know, fantastic points by these. Um, and I should have said Congresswoman-elect Mace and Congresswoman-elect Madiotakis, since they will be sworn in just next month or in, in January. But overall, I think this is a really important segment. The, obviously, the Republican Party in the House still has a ways to go to catch up to the Democrats. Democrats have four times as many women in office than the Republicans do. but In Congress, in, in the Congress, House of Representatives. In the House of Representatives, exactly. I mean, the fact that they only had 13 in this Congress is just abysmal and embarrassing, but they did the work and they found qualified women. Here in Southern California, two Korean Americans won very, very competitive races. And these swing districts, I mean, they're won on the slimmest of slimmest margins. And you need people... I mean, you being both parties need very, very competitive candidates to win these seats. And and you have to hustle hard to get these seats. And so the fact that they're looking for qualified women that reflect conservative values to run for these seats, I think is hopefully telling of the Republican Party wanting to expand their tent. And I think it's also reflective of what was said, I think it was last week, Brendan, by Yvette Simpson on This Week, I believe, or maybe it might have been two weeks ago, where she said demographics isn't destiny and that no party is guaranteed any minority group, any ethnicity, any race, and that you have to work to court those voters, to talk to them, to listen to them, and to advocate on the issues that matter to them. And this is the Republican Party doing that with women. And so I think it's a great job by Dana Bash to kind of have this conversation. And it's important that progressive Democrats realize that the Republicans are doing the work too. And you can't be asleep at the wheel. Everyone has to kind of hustle for those qualified people to run for office. Absolutely. This is a a great, great segment. And Dana Bash, of course, has always worked to focus in on female leaders across the board and issues of interest to the majority of Americans, which, you know, is women. That's right. (laughs) Slight majority, but a majority. I will take it. Absolutely. That's all you need. (laughs) (laughs) As is reflective in these slimmest margins of wits. Brendan, you have a highlight as well that stood out to you. Oh, yeah. This is... If I had an award to give out, I would give it out to... I know. And this has me thinking we should think of awards we need and trophies to come up with and an award, medals. Yeah. And- uh, for Face the Nation, this is just exactly, exactly what we say the Sunday shows should be doing. And that is choosing their own topic to talk about. Not letting the topics of discussion, not letting the agenda be set by politicians and by partisans, but to be set by the hosts, by the journalists themselves. It's their job to decide what is important enough to talk about on their show, what is worth the time to talk about, and what the audience should be thinking about. And in this instance, there were two discussions, two interviews about food insecurity, about hunger, people going hungry because of COVID-19, both here in the United States 
and across the world. And we got some disturbing, disturbing statistics, but at the same time, leaders who are fighting hunger, who are fighting to help people find the food that they need, and just incredible, incredible discussions about policy and choices that are before us. So first, the voice you're going to hear is Clara Babineau Fontenot in conversation with Margaret Brennan. She is the CEO of Feeding America. We've seen her on earlier in the COVID-19 pandemic about the, the problems facing Americans in getting food. And then the next bit that you will hear is David Beasley. He is the executive director for the UN World Food Program, a program that feeds, literally is the only source of calories for 30 million people around the world, give out food ultimately to over 100 million people. And he is a former Republican governor. Uh, But anyway, take a listen to some of the highlights from this conversation. Well worth a listen if anyone hasn't had a chance to view this program. I know you've been in contact with the Biden administration. incoming administration. And I know there's a debate among some Democrats right now about whether to refocus in some ways the agricultural department on this question of hunger versus the traditional focus on rural America. What would you advise the incoming administration? I'd start by saying that's a false choice. Um, The need is so great out there. We ought to be doing both. There's absolutely a role for the federal nutrition programs to play. That role, in fact, should be enhanced. And there's also a role for our our U.S.-based growers and and producers to play. Well, in the near term, we know uh, the CARES Act, uh, a lot of its support to Americans runs out at the end of December, leaving potentially almost 7 million people pending eviction, 12 million Americans without unemployment benefits. What is that going to do? Are your food banks prepared to meet what is potentially a lot of new need? Well, I'll tell you, I'll bet on this network of remarkable people to do everything that they can all the time. But the simple truth is there's no way that the charitable food system can do this alone. It's going to require it's an all in fight. It's going to require um, policy interventions, regulatory interventions. It's also public private partnerships. You know, the the U.S. taxpayer is the uh, single largest donor to the U.N.'s World Food Program. But we are going through a crisis here at home. You just heard how painful it is. Um, What impact do you think that economic strain is going to have on the U.S. ability to give to your organization? Well, it's extremely important. That's one of the things I'm talking with leaders around the world, especially the United States, who is our number one donor, as well as European leaders. You know, when you go back to the Syrian war, the European leaders did not step in at the right time, at the right place, and they paid a severe price. Syria was a nation of about 20 million people. The cost of supporting the Syrian in Syria is about 50 cents per day. That same Syrian ends up in Berlin or Brussels or London is 50 to 100 euros per day. And we know that people don't want to leave home, but if they don't have food and they don't have some degree of peace and stability, they will do what any of us would do for our children. So it's a lot cheaper to come in and prevent the destabilization than it is to have war and conflict afterwards. And the United States has always been the most generous nation Mm -hmm. on earth. And I don't expect the United States to back down now because this could be a lot cheaper to come in and do it right and prevent a lot of migration and a lot of destabilization and 
in fact, a lot of deaths from hunger. So, yeah, what a fantastic policy discussion going into details about Biden's agriculture department. And then that important point, you know, that, that we wanted to underscore last week when we heard Margaret Brennan invite viewers to give back to their community to help the fight for hunger. And we said, yeah, that's nice. However, we should be asking government to do this. And indeed, that's what Claire Bavineau Fontenot says, you know, directly, the charitable world can't solve this. We need governments to step in. David Beasley kind of underscoring that, talking about how Democrats and Republicans have helped this program. And that fantastic statistic that really should get more play, that under the Trump administration, Money going to the World Food Program went from $1.9 billion to $4 billion in aid. That was definitely surprising news for me, especially considering Trump saying he wanted to kind of focus here at home. But of course, we never got that infrastructure week that we were promised. There's not enough <laughs> weeks. There's not a lot of weeks left for that infrastructure week. But anyway, just outstanding, outstanding segment here and uh, a model that deserves praise and awards and deserves more importantly, being copied by the other shows. Absolutely. And I was just about to say that. Margaret Brennan, I think, has a good eye to to identify a story that's going to be huge in three to six months. And at the time, they kind of they kind of simmer below the surface. And you're like, oh, interesting. And then literally six months later, like, wait, didn't Margaret talk about this four months ago, five months ago? Yeah, like she did with COVID. She did with COVID. She did with, I think, all these different stories around industrial industries that have been impacted by the virus in terms of economic relief, in terms of food security. I mean, she's done this on so many different things. And it's it's really powerful. And I think she has a good intuition as to where things will develop. If Margaret's talking about it, people better listen. And, you know, more than that, she gets people on her Rolodex to commit to being on her show literally every week for a year, i.e. Dr. Gottlieb. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly she's doing something right. Well, that takes us to segment number one. Let's talk a bit, speaking of Gottlieb, about COVID-19 and the next steps moving forward. So we just had a flurry of administration officials talking about the coronavirus. People, members of the White House task force, from the Surgeon General to Dr. Burks to Dr. Fauci to Admiral Giroir. Just a huge amount of people. But we wanted to start with something that we heard on Fox News Sunday from Dr. Jerome Adams. He's the Surgeon General. And he was on Fox News Sunday speaking with Brett Baer, who is standing in for our regular host, Chris Wallace. And we wanted to start with kind of this. He was like the only person who appreciated the choices, some choices that that people made to be safer this Thanksgiving. Thank you for having me, Brett, and thank you to the American people who kept it small and smart this Thanksgiving. Millions of people did the right thing. And for those who did travel and those who did attend large gatherings, uh, we want you to know it's not too late to take measures to slow the spread of this virus. You can still isolate. Uh, you can still get tested in three to five days. You can still take measures that have been proven to help us prevent cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. Yeah, so this is the sentiment that we heard on every single show, but it was just definitely the warmest approach, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And still effective and still conveys what they're trying to to underscore, which is if you did meet with anyone for Thanksgiving that is not part of your traditional household pod, then it's not just kind of like, hope everything's okay and cross your fingers. No, that you should be isolating and that there's active measures that you can do right now to stay safe. 
Yeah, tone tone goes a long, long way here to inviting people to listen and take action on what you're asking them to do. In comparison, Dr. Burks on Face the Nation had a much kind of same message, but way more serious tone. We know people may have made mistakes over the hospital over the Thanksgiving time period. So if you're young and you gathered, you need to be tested about five to 10 days later, but you need to assume that you're infected and not go near your grandparents and aunts and others without a mask. We're really asking families to even mask indoors if they chose to gather during Thanksgiving and others went across the country or even into the next state. So yeah, much more kind of heavy tone and especially that line, People should assume they have COVID. Yeah, my if goodness. They met with other people. I don't know how much uh, fear that will lead to, and if that fear is helpful or not. But I do think the whole point of isolating and testing after after your Thanksgiving plans is actually a really important thing to reiterate. And the important thing to to remember is one of the reasons why Thanksgiving was potentially very dangerous was not just the situations that people were going to be putting themselves into, but the amount of virus that was out there able to spread. We had seen, you know, cases going up and up and up and up and up in a very worrying trend well before Thanksgiving even started. So then there was fear that all these people took these infections there. One place where it was going up and has been going up in a very concerning way is El Paso, which has more cases than about 19 other states in America. This is just one city. That's one city terrifying. of seven of 700,000 people. So very, very concerning stuff going on in El Paso. The mayor was on Face the Nation, and he was speaking with Margaret Brennan. This is Mayor D. Margo. I mean, the stories that I'm reading about your city, uh, you're talking about hiring mobile morgues and having inmates carry bodies. The National Guard has now offered help as well. The convention center has been turned into a hospital. Why is your city getting hit so hard? Mark, we're not real sure. We, we hit, uh, oh, about almost six weeks ago, we started spiking significantly. Um, I think people just, uh, the, the consensus is people just had COVID fatigue and they let down, as Dr. Burke said, you got to wear the mask and you got to maintain the distancing and you got to avoid the crowds. Uh, we did a deep dive in our contact tracing for the week of uh, November the 10th through the 16th and found out that uh, 55% of the positives were coming from shopping at large retailers, what we term as the big box stores. Mm-hmm. And those are considered essential under uh, CISA guidelines and the Homeland Security. And we don't really have, I don't have any control over any limitations there. We've asked for voluntary limitations and Walmart and several others are starting to meter, meaning they're going to limit the occupancy of their, their, uh, their stores. So there's, you know, just a, a slice of that conversation and the, the concerning, you know, things happening in that city, but also this fact of, uh, you know, 50%, 55% of the cases came from these big box retailer stores. And I can personally attest, I've been, I've been into some of them and they are worryingly busy. And, you know, there's pretty long lines for people to check out. I think a lot is happening in these lines that are supposedly, you know, spaced out. But I do want to note, though, and I, I'll we'll put it here in the show notes. There was a very interesting, interesting article 
in the New York Times last week talking about where cases were actually coming from and how a lot of the surge is happening in places that aren't small family gatherings, but are potentially these retailer locations or more specifically places like dorms, universities, prisons, still coming from nursing homes, you know, places where people are kind of cohabitating in large numbers without a lot of distance or space between and them. those and then there are people in those spaces that move in and out of them and yes. take it to their respective homes or meet with people outside of their household and things and so forth right so definitely definitely worth looking into because that's still you know we see these numbers and numbers and numbers going up and certainly you know it's important to remember each number is an actual human being it's, it's sometimes easy to be numbed by that by the you know the, the coldness of those numbers, but also to to ask wh- how did they get it? What what exactly is happening here? You know, I, I think a lot of people in their life have heard of friends or loved ones who have gotten COVID, and you know the first question is how are you feeling? You know, is everything okay? You know, maybe the second is what can I do to help, but the third is well, how did you get it? What what happened? What were you doing? Or what? Where were you? Or what can I do? To, you know, what would you recommend that I do not to not to get it? So, every time we hear about that, we we pay attention. And I would guess there's also this unfortunate stigma that sometimes people think if you contracted the coronavirus, that somehow it was due always to poor choices or irresponsible choices. And it could just be there's someone in your life that's important to you that works in a prison or in a nursing home or in some space where the virus spreads really quickly or your close friends or your you know you really think someone is being safe and they have different security measures or comfort risk risk comfort levels and you meet with them and then you get it so i think it's really really truly so important to Remember that the way people are contracting this virus is so vastly different depending on what their life circumstances is. And the important thing is to know their status and to get tested and to isolate rather than making assumptions about how or why they got the virus and making sure there's proper mitigation, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's a huge, huge point. There was a uh, a very fascinating um, conversation I, I saw about the similarities between the stigma surrounding COVID and the stigma surrounding the AIDS crisis and HIV back in the 80s and how there was a great stigma around that and how much work had to be put into getting rid of that stigma, you know, helping people understand, you know, responsible behavior, but at the same time, not stigmatizing people who got the virus. And one of the biggest worries of stigma is that people will fail to step forwards and tell others around them that they are infected. Oh my gosh, yes. And because if you create such a strong stigma, then people, you know, people don't step forward, right? I mean, if your kid or you end up getting coronavirus and then you have to call all the parents of the school that your kid goes to and say, hey, I have it and my kid just, you know, was at your school for the past three days and you have to call every parent and tell them that you're the one that maybe put their, their kids at risk or their family at risk. You know, that that can be a very scary thing in a world where the stigma is, is very strong. So we don't want to disincentivize people from stepping forward and being honest about others who they may have exposed by making the stigma so, so dangerous. Yeah, well. it's so interesting to say that. And we're staying on this a bit longer than we anticipated. But so my sister lives in New York City and she she made some comment this year 
about like a previous potential lice exposure when her kids were hanging out with some other kids. And my reaction was like, oh, God, that sucks so much. And, you know, I kind of reacted really strongly. And she's like, oh, New Yorkers are so used to it. Like there is a possible lice outbreak like once a year with your children. And for me, like usually having lived in suburbs or exurbs, and obviously we just had our first kid, so I haven't had to worry about it really with, with children. But it like the idea skeeves me out so much, <sighs> like, ugh, it's so gross. But if you live in a city and have children and there's like just just cities in general between lice and bedbugs and this is kind of getting gross. But there was a level of like not freak out. And her reaction versus mine and just based off of how normal it was to call parents that your child had either hung out with their kids or what, like it was just such a normal tax to do to call the parents of the friends of your children to say like, hey, check your check their heads. Just be careful, blah, 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 versus what I remember in, in the schools that I grew up in and, and kind of my peers. So the stigma thing is, is very real. Yeah, and it's it's a very difficult thing to maneuver because again, you want to encourage responsible behavior and but then there's also this like fear that people have and then there's also the sense of like shaming people for doing mm-hmm. things that are not responsible and then, you know, you get into that stigma section because it's like, oh, well, they've been irresponsible, so of course they got it, right? And right. and there's that whole so how do you and then they might be like, "Oh, I don't want to tell these friends because you know, they'll they'll think that I got it because I was being irresponsible. So anyway, it's it's kind of like this very difficult situation. And uh, we just need to be very conscious of that. Beyond not contracting the virus, there's also the whole next steps around the vaccine, the implementation and safety and everything around it. And there were lots of voices, as you mentioned, Brendan, public health officials that were on and kind of really talking about the efficacy and need for people to be vaccinated. Dr. Fauci was on Meet the Press and Chuck Todd asked what we were wondering about last week in terms why Americans should assume the distribution of vaccines will go smoothly when testing has been anything but smooth this year. Given the, um, uh, and and you've admittedly said this, our, our sort of rough rollout of a testing strategy in this country, arguably we still don't have you know, it's, we're still dealing with a testing strategy that arguably prioritizes sports leagues over healthcare workers at times. Um, but let me ask you this. Why should we feel confident that vaccine distribution will go smoothly, considering, frankly, how unsmoothly testing went? Well, what the reason that that we should feel more confident about that, uh, Chuck, is that we have a long, long history of the distribution of vaccines. I mean, it, it's not to the extent that you giving it to 300 million people. But every year, the system is set up in a relationship between the CDC and the state and local health authorities that they distribute 80 million or more vaccines every year. So this isn't something that they've done just for the first time. Obviously, you're going to want to scale it up because the numbers are going to be greater. But there are a couple of aspects to getting vaccine into the arm of someone who needs it. One is to get it transported from the place where it's made and stored to the local state and city areas. That's being handled by General Gus Perna and the military and the transport of that. Once it gets there, it's the state and local authorities who are responsible for the distribution. So there are a couple of phases. 
the part about 300 million doses getting shipped is going to be taken care of by people who know how to do that. The part at the at the distal end, namely yeah. getting into people's arms, is going to be more challenging than just the regular flu season. Yeah. I think you'd, you'd be foolish to deny that. But I think it's going to be able to be done because the local people have done that in the past. Yes, it was great to see that question finally asked and, you know, some clear explanations for why we should be a little more hopeful that now one thing we didn't hear. I do want to point out, though, is that this 20 million vaccines in December number that we heard all over the Sunday shows last week, that was not here this week. And I think they're kind of backing off of that number because I do think it is a little ambitious. I Again, I would love it to be true, but I don't know that it will be. But speaking of that local level, you know, the last mile, as they often say, in uh, distribution, on Face the Nation, we heard from the mayor of Detroit, Mayor Mike Dugan, and he was talking about the work that is happening now, literally, he says, around the clock to get ready for distributing the vaccine to the population of Detroiters. But we know in Detroit, we're going to take our convention center, we're going to take the parking structures around our football and baseball stadiums, because when we were doing the huge testing in the summer, you had good weather. Mm-hmm. You can't do wholesale vaccinations in January, February and March out in snowstorms. And so we're probably going to take all of the major parking structures. And as soon as the vaccines are available, January or February, uh, we're going to gear up and, and we intend to vaccinate 5,000 a day. We know the pharmacies are going to be helpful. The doctors and hospitals will be helpful. But the magnitude of what we're talking about, this country has never uh, experienced. And basically right now, we're day and night yeah. getting ready uh, for wholesale vaccinations. Uh, so again, Brendan and I live in a very warm place. And so this whole component of snowstorms and not being able to do vaccinations outside literally blew my mind. <laughs> I it like it was not on my radar at all that like people can't stand outside for hours at a time if it's freezing and there are snowbanks everywhere. Well, and we have to remember like how do you get a vaccine, right? It's it's very similar to how you would get tested. Like you need to be very close to a healthcare worker who needs to treat you as if you might have COVID-19, right? Right. And even more than that, getting COVID tested, you can do it in your car and they lower a window. Like, I don't know if they can do that with the vaccine. I At least so. for, with can... the flu vaccine, you have to go into a little like room and they like, you have to answer like a little survey and then they have to wipe your arm and then you get, you know, like. Maybe you could just hang your arm out of the car. I don't know. I think it's logistically. But I think. Yeah, I think the point they're making, though, is you want it in a parking structure because you do want that ventilation, right? You don't want to be at a... Right, right. No, I understand that. I'm just saying, in general, there's a lot more steps and a lot less... Yes. a, A lot fewer options in terms of doing it safely outside. Yeah. Very true. Parking parking garages are going to be key. And as a continuation from last week, there was also quite a few conversations about confidence in the vaccine and if people are going to feel comfortable taking it to begin with. And Dr. Jerome Adams, the Surgeon General, he was on Fox News Sunday talking to Brett Baer, and they discussed this directly. We, we decrease the amount of, of, of uh, time that, that is wasted in the process without compromising safety or review or efficacy, and at 90 to 95% safe, uh, or 90 90 to 95% efficacy, what I would hate is if we had a vaccine that could end this pandemic and people actually didn't get it, wouldn't end this pandemic, 
This vaccine will have more people who've, uh, who, who've been tested than any other vaccine in history at the point of authorization. About 5,000 people are normally enrolled in vaccine trials. These trials have 30 to 60,000 people. So I feel confident and safe. I will get a vaccine when they tell me I can get a vaccine. So yeah, yet another, you know, arrow in the quiver in the conversation with people who are not wanting to get this vaccine, right? We learned last week about how this vaccine wasn't developed in one year, you know, standing on 10 years of research, right? And this week we hear that it's been tested on more people than any vaccine ever. But there are still going to be those who are resistant to the vaccine. I think in the media consciousness, there's a sense that these are probably Republicans, probably Trump supporters. However, as was mentioned on State of the Union, that's not always the case. Take a listen to this question from Dana Bash to Admiral Brett Gerois, the Assistant Secretary for Health and a member of the task force. Four in 10 Americans, though, told Gallup this month that they don't want to take the vaccine. That includes a majority of non-white Americans. So how are you going to convince Americans to take this vaccine? So I, I want to make sure that all Americans know that this vaccine, these vaccines have been tested in tens of thousands of individuals. There are independent data safety monitoring boards. There's going to be an independent transparent review. The Pfizer vaccine will have an advisory committee on December 10th. All the data will be out there. Um, the Surgeon General and myself and all the team are really out trying to educate the public. Um, it, we have to see what the data show, but all indications are this is an extremely safe uh, vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna, and very, very effective, over 95% effective. And remember, if we can immunize for impact, that is, immunize those groups that are at the highest risk, like long-term care facilities, the elderly, minorities, uh, we can absolutely get 80% of the benefit of, uh, of the vaccine by only immunizing a few percent of the population. And that's what we really need to do this month when we're going to have, you know, we should have enough vaccine by the end of the year to immunize 20 million Americans, and we have to immunize for impact. The rest of America will get it in the second quarter, third quarter of 2021, but we could maximize our impact right now. Just such a huge important point here by Dana Bash that the majority of non-white Americans don't feel comfortable with the vaccine. And what I hear, what I appreciate in Admiral Drawa's response is he's not dismissive of that doubt. He's not dismissive of that fear, but what he does is he underscores the importance of his role and of the other task force member and other public health officials to reiterate and explain why the vaccine is safe. I appreciate that, that they're kind of taking that aspect of the implementation of the of the vaccine really seriously, especially since the public health messaging at the start of this virus was such a mess, right? Especially around testing, especially around social distancing, just the public health communication was so poor and the trust is and decimated public trust that it really seems as if they're doing the work weeks before the vaccine is out to really counter a lot of the false narratives that are kind of really just rampant in communities. But this is interesting, interesting data, too, that he provides. And I really wish that there was more clarity on the topic of Certainly, we, we hear a lot of discussions of, okay, we have a limited amount of vaccines available now. They're only going to go to the people where it can make the greatest impact to start with, right? That makes sense. We're going to give it to healthcare workers. We're going to give it to the elderly. We're going to give it to people in nursing homes, the vulnerable, right? That makes sense. 
help those who are most at risk. But what Brett Giroir is saying is something else. He says, quote, we can absolutely get 80% of the benefit of the vaccine by only immunizing a few percent of the population, end quote. That is not something we've heard very widely from these other people on the Sunday shows. Well, Gottlieb a few weeks ago said something to that effect. Gottlieb said that you generally want to get herd herd immunity. You need to have 70% of the people immune. And they can get that immunity from from two sources. One is the vaccine and one is from already having had the virus. Right. No, he said that last week. I know. But like prior to that, he said, we don't have to vaccinate. There'll be a huge benefit even with... 20 30 percent of people vaccinated. right and I, I want i want more of that conversation to get out there because i think people are of the mind when they're hearing oh the most americans won't be able to get vaccinated until the first or second quarter then they start thinking oh well you know the world isn't going to be much improved until then right but that's right. not the case right that is right? that is true so i'd like to see more discussion of that and i think that would be really helpful and raising public morale yes. and hope and confidence in our economy. I mean, there's a lot of other ramifications beyond like our physical safety that I think would benefit from that messaging too. Yeah. You know, we've heard these messages before, like from Dr. Fauci this week saying, just hold on, hold, you know, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. We see that we're we're getting towards this vaccine world. Just hold on, keep social distance, distancing, keep wearing that mask, keep making sure that you wash your hands. Just hold out because it's the end is near, the end of this terrible period. But there should be discussion of quite how near that is, right? Right. So speaking about ends being near... <laughs> Ooh, wow, what a transition. We're near the end of Donald Trump's presidency slash his refusal to end his presidency. And that takes us to our election fallout segment, Naomi. So we wanted to begin this segment with, first of all, a little discussion of what's to come in the future. And we've certainly been seeing almost more news, actually, in the last week or two from the Biden transition than from the Trump White House. That's definitely true. Yeah, very, very interesting. We saw the rollout of Joe Biden's national security team last week. There's going to be potentially big news about Joe Biden naming Janet Yellen as the Treasury Secretary this week. She'd be the first female Treasury Secretary, of course, the former. Women just learned how to count. So it makes sense. We saw today, yes, <laughs> we saw today Joe Biden name his communications team in the White House, all women leading that team. But there was actually also really interesting discussion of this on the panel of this week. It was not featuring our regular panelists of Rahm Emanuel or Chris Christie. Perhaps they were enjoying the holiday. Perhaps Rahm Emanuel was interviewing with the Biden team to <laughs> get a role in the cabinet. Uh, probably. But nonetheless, Martha Raddatz hosted, and we heard from Michelle Norris. She is a columnist for The Washington Post, as well as Matthew Dowd, talking about expanding Joe Biden's cabinet in very interesting ways. Um, it's interesting to look at not just who he's choosing for the cabinet, but how he will compose the cabinet. It's quite possible that given the, the year of tumult that we faced and all the uncertainties that he might be expanding the cabinet with new faces, but also with new positions in the cabinet. It would not be at all surprising if he used the envoy position like we see with John Kerry in other uh, in other situations, um, likely a pandemic czar, but possibly even someone who would focus on technology and innovation, um, focus on education, focus on uh, economic problems going forward beyond the traditional rubric of commerce and the Small Business Administration. 
I think one thing that I think Joe Biden, if I were him, would do is try to put somebody in a cabinet level position, whether it's a czar over democracy and the institution of democracy in this country. What we've seen over the course of the last few years and especially the last month is an attack on the democratic institutions of our country. It's a lot like water pipes in our country, Martha, where you can't just ignore them for 80 or 90 years and think they're all fine. We have to do repair on the institutions and the infrastructure of democracy. I think that's really important. So I think this is really interesting, this idea of having, you know, an expanded cabinet, different positions focused on different issues, even if there isn't a cabinet level agency for these people to lead at the time. Uh, I do want to note, however, certainly the uh, the cabinet level position on democracy is is a great idea because there have been so many attacks on it during this election season. However, there is definitely something kind of funny to say something, the czar of democracy, when czar was an emperor of Russia, who is not (laughs) democratically chosen, right? (laughs) The czar of democracy. (laughs) Hopefully they don't call it that if they choose to name one. But there were also several conversations of these last six to seven weeks of Trump's presidency and what long-term effects could, could result of them. On Meet the Press, retired Admiral Mike Mullen was on. He's a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he really talked about the national security angle of of the last few weeks. In particular, that there's a lot of potential damage that could happen based off of decisions that are made in the Pentagon. What other situations are there around the world right now that you're concerned that there may be more attempts at tying the hands of the new president? Well, I think I'm actually very concerned about the Trump loyalists who have now gone to work in the Pentagon. I mean, uh, recently, Secretary Esper was fired and a host of other people left the building. And there are uh, some real Trump loyalists there now uh, in in charge. And it's pretty difficult to think that over the course of 50 or 60 days, you can do something constructive, but you can do something that's really destructive. Uh, and a week ago, there were certain there were many media reports that there was a debate about uh, action against Iran specifically right. uh, that the president reportedly uh, uh, turned down. Uh, but I would be concerned that those issues continue to be raised. So it's not often that retired Admiral Mullen is on the Sunday shows. And the fact that he was talking about this, the fact that he felt it was worth waking up in the morning to bring this to attention should raise a warning flag for us that uh, there is definitely a lot of concern about potential national security, big national security changes that Donald Trump will be trying to put into effect in the last 50 days. So the other angle of the election fallout that we thought was really important to discuss is really the consequences of Trump's allegation of massive voter fraud or that the election was rigged. There were several conversations tied to this across the shows, and it was really interesting seeing Republicans, I don't know, squirm or just seem unsettled and unsure of really what they're going to do next and didn't really bode a ton of confidence in our whole democratic process and democratic institutions. The first conversation that was noteworthy to me was on State of the Union. Dana Bash interviewed Senator Roy Blunt. He's a Republican senator from Missouri. He's also chairman of the Rules Committee, which is a key committee to move forward once the Electoral College votes, which 
they're supposed to match whatever the American people vote. But anyway, they're kind of the last step. And he is the chairman of that committee. And I was just surprised with actually a few things. I was surprised with how much he was still catering to Trump's precious ego. And two, I was very surprised and pleased with the aggressive questioning by Dana Bash and really putting his feet to the fire based off his experience, based off of the authority and power he has and demanding explanations from him. Take a listen to a couple of clips. And let me ask you this way, this approach. Um, You were the secretary of state in Missouri. Have you seen evidence of widespread voter fraud? You know how this works. Have you seen any evidence of of voter fraud? Well, it's up to the president's lawyers to present that evidence. And at this point, they haven't done it in a way that was acceptable to any court. I think there were things that could have been done differently and better to ensure there weren't voter fraud. I don't I think the system, frankly, was more secure. Uh, than it's ever been before. And the president deserves some credit for that. So having given, a so homeland given the security that, effort that reached out to the states. Okay, so given the, fa- given the fact that you have not seen... Encourage states to go to paper ballots. Given the fact that you have not seen uh, voter fraud and that, that the more, most importantly, the president's legal team hasn't presented anything uh, that is legitimate in any of these court cases, um, do you wish that the president would stop talking about voter fraud and undermining a democratic process uh, that is quite fragile in this country? Well, I think the democratic process is strong and can certainly survive this discussion. I do hope that uh, voters, particularly Republican voters, uh, turn out and vote in Georgia. Okay, I want to move on to the the coronavirus, but just yes or no. Do you, Roy Blunt, uh, as not just the former Secretary of State of Missouri, as the rules chairman, you, you have a, a bird's eye oversight view of the elections. Do you think it was rigged? Yes or no? I don't think it was rigged, but I do think there were some things that were done that shouldn't have been done. And I think there was some element of voter fraud as there is in every election. But I don't have any reason to believe that the numbers are there and, that would have made that difference. And not you know, enough I to change the results. That That's the key. When they were opening all those ballots, they would have let people see that they were checking the signatures. When you send ballots out to people uh, that you don't know if they're still there or not, and they come back and you don't check the signatures, Senator, Senator, that's a huge problem. But, but I don't think we've demonstrated it's the size of problem. Okay. That would have, and Senator, just would, just would to put a button on that, there's no evidence that that people didn't see signatures. In fact, the the state uh, supreme court and now a federal court have both thrown out the notion that that didn't happen. But I, but I want to move on to, to coronavirus because this obviously is an important time in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United- Dana Bash did an outstanding job in this interview, pursuing these points in so many different ways, ready with fact checks, ready with, you know, rephrases to try to get to the answer. And, you know, you see Roy Blunt there saying, no, 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 I think our, you know, our democratic institutions are strong, but I do hope that people, you know, Republican voters turn out in Georgia. It's like, why wouldn't they turn out? Maybe they wouldn't turn out because you keep saying that things are rigged. You and your party are saying that voting is rigged and that decreases voter turnout. And you yourself are afraid that your own voters are going to be disengaged because of what you are doing to undermine legitimacy of democracy. And at one point, he discounts the whole notion that Joe Biden is himself right now the president-elect. That can't happen until the electors in the Electoral College meet, even though the votes have already been certified in key states. 
But and that and that alone implies that there the votes of the electors could be different or it's okay if they're different than what the American people voted. Exactly. But this is the position a lot of these Republican leaders have put themselves in as, you know, as we've mentioned, week after week after week, it becomes harder and harder for them to defend the president's position, right? And that's what we're seeing here. Roy Blunt is not saying Joe Biden will be president, but he gets pretty close. And he kind of talks around it in all these different ways. And someone who looks at the news and looks at the data and the facts can be frustrated by Roy Blunt's refusal to acknowledge the reality but the reality also is that Roy Blunt is not presenting a very strong case for Donald Trump. We haven't really seen a strong case made for Trump since Governor Noam, Christy Noam, was on a few weeks ago. Since then, there has been nobody out there supporting his voter fraud statements that he actually won the election. And that is absolutely noteworthy because it's a real change from what we've seen in the past when Donald Trump was in a very public fight over issues, for example, like the impeachment. I think that's all fair assessments and criticisms. I think the only thing I would add to that is that it's crucial, I think, that Dana Bash contextualized Senator Blunt's experience and authority. It's one thing to demand, what's your impression of such and such thing that President Trump said? Or President Trump tweeted this as a Republican senator. Do you think that's appropriate? There's a lot of like, asking for immediate impressions, but she's not asking just for his impression. She's basing it on his experience as a secretary of state from the state of Missouri and the fact that he's chairman of the rules committee. And those are key experiences that you think would shape his reaction to President Trump. And it doesn't seem to. And that's the piece that I think is is very powerful. And she could have easily kind of skipped over that, right? She could have followed up without reminding viewers that he was a former Secretary of State. She, you know, could have just asked multiple times without mentioning that he's chairman of the Rules Committee. But it's important that people realize that those pl- should play a role in how we experience or, or interpret his his answer. I've never lived in the state of Missouri. I don't know many people who have. And so, you know, that's n- those aren't facts that would be kind of top of mind for me, but definitely shape now what I think of Senator Blunt. Okay, I have one good friend who is one of our most loyal listeners, and he is from Missouri. Let's stay corrected. Yes. <laughs> but as Senator Blunt kind of nodded towards, there is concern that all of this denial of the election results are going to discourage people in Georgia from voting in the next really important election for Republicans. And that is, of course, the runoff elections for the Senate in Georgia, which will determine the control of the Senate. Take a listen to this eye-opening clip that I hadn't heard before. That was featured on Fox News Sunday of Rona McDaniel speaking with Georgia voters. We're back with our panel now. Uh, Juan, these legal challenges are continuing. Uh, one by one, we have not seen judges uh, you know, sign off or buy into the arguments made by the Trump legal team, but they are continuing. Meantime, you have this upcoming runoff in Georgia, two Senate seats that really hangs in the balance the control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, 
And there is a concern among some that because of the efforts to call the election a fraud or completely stolen, that's going to hurt Republicans getting to the polls down here. Here is Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chair, taking questions from people in which they're saying, why should we vote? It's already done. Take a listen. It's not decided. This is the key. It's not decided. First of all, David Perdue still has a hundred thousand vote to uh, lead over John Ossoff right now with the with the, with the certification. So if you lose your faith and you don't vote and people walk away, that that will decide it. This was so interesting to me. There's been conversations, of course, and funny tweets about. Republican voters in Georgia not believing in the election and kind of believing Trump and not wanting to vote and just kind of and there were kind of broad based conjectures that that would suppress the Republican vote. But I hadn't heard a clip directly or, you know, seen an article directly. And so hearing these voters saying, like, what's the point? And Rona McDaniel, I don't know about you, but I felt like there was like a franticness to her to her voice here where she's like no like if you don't vote like that's deciding it but that's what happens yeah. when you defend trump's allegations of a rigged election like why would people why would his supporters believe in the institution and in the process that then they have to participate in it like literally doesn't make any sense yeah i mean what that's the other point like why would you legitimize what you think is a an illegitimate election Correct. by showing up Lots of trouble, lots of trouble here. And, you know, it might presage trouble in the future for the next election, right? I mean, it's one thing for Donald Trump to say, I think the, you know, this election could be rigged like he was before the, you know, election this year. But it's another thing for people to see the result and say, oh, the result isn't what I wanted. This person I believe is telling me it was rigged. So why should I show up again in the future? It'll be interesting to watch. And another reason why they need a democracy czar or hopefully lead <laughs> yeah. in the Biden administration. All right, Naomi, that takes us to show rankings. We can speed through this pretty quickly because they were all very they good They were shows. all super solid. I think any of the five shows was a valuable use of time. I don't know if I've ever said that before. Yeah, I, I, do, wanna, I do want to, because we don't have an award ready, give Face the Nation number one for the amount of time they dedicated to hunger and that issue. Okay. Superstar Award. Well, can we just give like superlatives this week instead of rankings? No, we have to give rankings because one day we're going to do the data and then we're going to be able to say, you know, you know how it works. You I know, know how it works. Fine. I thought superlatives could be fun Thanksgiving. Way you've to kill fun. I think you've mentioned that like years ago and I, I shot it down there too. <laughs> I like it the other way around when I have a good idea and you praise me the second time around and forget that you praise me the first time around. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Face the Nation, one. And then I'm going to say I think two should be State of the Union. Dana Bash yes. just knocked it out of the park in so many interviews between the Roy Blunt aggressive questioning and then that great segment with those Republican congresswomen-elect. So, I mean, there are other points in in the show that are worthwhile, but those two stand out for sure in my mind. Totally, totally, totally. I guess I would also say Fox News Sunday was decent. I got, you know, I get nervous when someone hosts for Chris Wallace, like very, very nervous. And who is not Chris Wallace? Yeah, who's not Chris Wallace. But Brett Bear, I thought, did a really fantastic job. The panel was not the greatest use of time, but the interviews with Governor Hutchinson, with Governor Murphy, with 
Dr. Adams. I think we're all, you know, really stellar. And I thought they were, I learned things for sure. So I think I would say three Fox News Sunday. Okay, so I will say number four, meet the press. Chuck Todd did what we said was impossible for anyone other than Jake Tapper or a female host. And that is ask about children as it relates to COVID-19. So we got to give him praise for that because it's literally one week after we said that it wasn't being done. And sure enough, here it is one week later and it was done. Yeah, so he, he, asked, he asked Dr. Fauci when children would be eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. And it wasn't a giant conversation, but it was there. It was there to remind people that, hey, there are children at risk and we should be thinking about them too. And number five will be this week by order of... Elimination. Elimination. Do you remember Poe in math in like middle school? Poe? Yeah, it was process of elimination. I've heard the phrase, but I did not know there was an acronym for it. Thank you to my sixth grade. Thank you, sixth grade algebra. I remember PEMDAS. Oh, yeah. I remember PEMDAS too. Are the the, the six math rules we remember? (laughs) Go. (laughs) Anyway, okay, well, we should wrap it up. But we can't go without our dialogue challenge. I think this week I would say the dialogue challenge would be around the COVID-19 vaccine. Obviously, for the general public, if you're safe and healthy and relatively young, young being kind of younger than the age of 50, we're not quite eligible to have the vaccine quite yet, maybe if you're a healthcare worker. But that doesn't mean we can't be talking about it. We can't be talking about why we feel safe or what some of those reservations might be and talking about it with someone and trying to understand where those reservations kind of stem from and if they're truly valid. And, you know, I think a good example of this could be just talking about the flu vaccine more broadly, whether or not you've taken it, when do you take it, where have you taken it, what did someone help convince you? What were some of your reservations? And trying to explore that conversation might help you understand whether or not you feel comfortable taking the COVID-19 vaccine. And then maybe that kind of relieves some of your reservations or frustrations or questions. Absolutely. Always an important conversation, but also worth noting that by the time a lot of people start getting the vaccine, millions of Americans will have taken it by then. And so hopefully seeing the safety of their example will encourage others to do similarly. Yeah, and I think just one just quick example of this that might be helpful is Jessica Malati Rivera. She is the science communication lead with the COVID tracking project. And she just has a fantastic Instagram, really talking about all things COVID and the science behind it, the public health messaging, how to talk about it, what to understand about it, and what to debunk. And one thing I have appreciated so much as we go into the winter season is that she has really kind of destigmatized. She has really encouraged her followers to take the flu vaccine and to really take away the stigma and shame if you haven't ever done it before. And really just kind of applauding the people who are getting the flu vaccine for the first time, reminding them to get the flu vaccine, reminding people in their life to get the flu vaccine, and just kind of showing like, hey, there's always room we can make to make ourselves and our families and our community safer. And getting the flu vaccine is one way to look out for each other. And it's something so, so small, but it's 
I don't know, like the, the tone and the approach, even just for me, and I was planning on taking the flu vaccine, but I had to stop by the grocery store, you know, about a month ago. And I was like, hey, there's no line at the pharmacy. I'm gonna see if they can give me a flu vaccine right now. And I did, right? And it was just kind of like a positive, encouraging approach to getting your flu vaccine. And I think that type of tone, that type of encouragement is what's gonna get us all closer to a safer world of kind of COVID-free world. Yeah. In these conversations, you know, try to be more like Dr. Jerome Adams and less like Dr. Deborah Burks. Or just follow, again, Jessica Malati Rivera. She's amazing. In the meantime, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me at Beastidle on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Sodoniomi underscore, and you can follow the show at Polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.